Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Hello, everybody, and welcome to GradCast. I'm your host, Alex Mozinski. I'm joined by Tristan Johnson. Tristan, Hi. How are you today, Tristan? Wet. <laughs> yeah, it's a rainy day here in London. Uh, plus, Pretty like, rainy. I'm recycling shirts. This is like a workout shirt because I'm moving on Friday, and so all my clothes are in boxes. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> where are you moving to? I guess not specific, but like where? I'm moving like a 20-minute walk from where I live now. So, so it's, it's, if, you, if you are a Western student and you know where the 7-Eleven is, I'm moving near there. Awesome. <laughs> or if you know, you know where Kelly lives. I'm moving like not even a two-minute walk from there. All right. <laughs> that, that's really interesting for all the people listening from like all over the world. Yeah. But there it's, you go. The important thing is that it's a nice, safe area that you probably won't get hurt in. So, and it's near campus, so that's exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's actually further than I live now. But and when do you say you're moving? Thursday and Friday. Thursday and Friday. Oh, nice. All right, it's actually kind of an interesting time to move, isn't it? Like it's not the first of the month; it's kind of mid-month now. So, did you pay your rent in like your current location and there? Like, is it double month rent? Yeah, this is gonna make awesome podcast material. But uh, essentially, I was paid up on the apartment I own anyway until the end of August, and we just got it in July. So we technically have had the apartment since Canada Day, and now we just move in whenever we feel like it. And Kelly's been moving in since like couple weeks ago so keeps things easy mm-hmm. all right well awesome all right guys today we're, we're joined by zachary howley hi zach hello zach is just about to start his master's in my lab actually so zach why don't you tell them a little bit about what we do in the strong lab uh so our main focus in the strong lab is we study a disease called als what does als mean Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, <laughs> uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or Lou Gehrig's disease is what's most commonly known as. Um, pretty much this is a, a motor neuron disease that essentially, over time, you lose your ability to control voluntary movement. So like for you to think about moving your arms or running, you slowly move the ability to move your legs, your arms, and eventually, this progresses in affecting your respiratory system, which eventually leads to fatality within three to five years. Yeah, I would probably say like Lou no. Gehrig being the baseball player who got it, but uh, the more, most famous case is Stephen Hawking. Mm-hmm. Right. Except his is really, really slow. Stephen Hawking's an, a really unusual case because it is a slow progressing one, but he also has amazing care as well. So he's got people who can kind of wait on him hand and foot. He's got the financial ability to have that as well so he's had top-of-the-line care for a long time and he's had people there to make sure his respirator is clean and he can't breathe by himself but he's got people to make sure he's he's effectively not getting pneumonia basically for a long time so Um, so it's a it's his wealthy lifestyle that has possibly possibly kept him alive yeah there's a lot of research wondering why his has progressed the way it has. He has lived for a very long time. He's lived a full life with ALS. Um, in very rare cases, that sometimes happens, but no one really understands why yet. So like, like percentage-wise, could you fill me in and be like, how many Stephen Hawkings are out there? Very few. Like very per- few, yeah. percentage I can, of I can only think of two right now. It was the one you showed me the other day with the guitarist. I can't remember his name. Yeah. 
one guitarist and Stephen Hawking. Well, those are like celebrity cases, though. Yeah, they're very yeah, yeah. famous cases. So and like, my, my GP from my childhood was lost to ALS. I remember that. So it, it's a it's quite a. I, I think that you you everyone knows one person at least who's had it, or who, no one gets better from it, but who has like lost a family member to it or something. It's a horrifying disease, and for those of you who were around last summer, most people who were aware of what was going on in the world, the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge happened, and that was kind of exciting for the field of ALS because right. it is a relatively rare but terribly horrifying disease. So the incidence is like two to three cases per 100,000 individuals. But when you see it, I mean, the average progression is within two to five years from symptom onset to, fate, you know, to death. And, and you just see people who seemed perfectly healthy last time you saw them. And then a couple months later, they could be unable to talk, unable to walk, just not, not able to, mm -hmm. you know, go to the bathroom on their own. And it is, it's very sad. All right. So next question then, we're about a year out from the ice bucket challenge. Yep. Have you guys seen that reflected in like, like has all of that ALS money started to show up in like, like way more grants or something like that? Or if it has just, it's the American ones, maybe not directly to you guys. ALS Canada actually, so I was at a conference um, at the beginning of May and ALS Canada did have actually a special session where the researchers and clinicians and even some patients from around Canada got to come together for a forum and discuss what to do with the money. It, it was great. It raised, I forget the exact figure, it's somewhere on, on the order of tens of millions of dollars. Um, when you consider the cost of one patient or one clinic or one lab, one grant, I mean, if one research grant is a million dollars and that could be one study, one new piece of equipment, then uh, the unfortunate thing is it's a staggering figure in tens of millions of dollars. It's great, say 20 million, but that might actually only be funding for about 20 things. Um, so it looks amazing. Oh, we've raised so much money and... You know, it is an amazing feat and but it's great for research, research is... but research is very expensive yeah. and we would need to do that like every year to make a significant and lasting impact in any research field. So it's, it's kind of sad, but true. And, and that's what happened really. So they're hoping to keep it going. I don't think it'll repeat itself again. Um, but in terms of what to do with the money, they have actually come together as the ALS Society of Canada has anyway. Um, to sit down so that everybody was represented to discuss and have a consensus on what to do. And I actually wasn't there for that part of the meeting. Um, I had to, to leave the conference just before that happened. That we was were a very escorted out. Thing. Yeah. Uh, for disorderly conduct. Yeah, we don't want this guy helping make decisions. Uh, so, Zach, uh, so yeah. let's, uh, anyway. let's get to your stuff. Yeah. Right. So, what do you do? How, what is, what are your, what's your battle towards this disease? Yeah. So, how I study ALS is more at the molecular level, so studying molecules that are within the cell. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, every tissue is made up of cells. Uh, every cell has DNA in it that codes these things called genes, which make up a cell a cell and produces proteins and mm -hmm. stuff like that. It allows us to function as humans. How these proteins are produced goes by the central dogma that we have in molecular biology, which is we go from DNA to RNA the protein. Now that RNA is something called messenger RNA. And essentially it's called that because it carries the message to produce protein. 
Mm-hmm. Well, so, like, so like more basic here, like here's my, yeah, my sure. layperson understanding. So RNA can be in viruses, but not all the time. Like viruses kind of use it as their, their DNA. But basically uh, DNA works because you can cut it in half and then copy it. Like that's when like the yeah, like sure, one half can like fill out. And so messenger RNA is when they like peel off a little bit of the DNA to go do a job and then they just replace it later. Like, right yeah, there. sure. That, that's exactly what messenger RNA is. They okay. peel something off and goes and does a job mm-hmm. later. later. Um, I know I, 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 from your face, I can yeah. tell that I was wrong about something with the viruses. But no, 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 it's fine. It's, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> viruses are a different story. Going down that road is a mess. Um, but um, anyways, these messenger RNAs are going to go on. They carry your message to produce protein. So within your cell, we use that message. That message is translated into a protein that's functional for your cell. What I study is microRNAs. So microRNAs don't really follow this central dogma of DNA to RNA to protein, but rather they regulate this messenger RNA. And but they do that by just interacting with it. So they bind to this messenger RNA and they're going to stabilize it, allowing for increased protein production. In most cases, they're actually going to destabilize it and cause a downregulation of that protein. Um, and so sort of that balance between uh, stabilizing the protein and how much protein we need in our cell is essential for normal cell function. Now in ALS, a lot of these microRNAs are dysregulated. And the microRNAs I study in particular are the ones that are dysregulated and affect something called neurofilament. So before we, we go any, any further, yeah. I just want to say, what exactly is a microRNA? So we've established kind of what they do. Yeah, but, but what is it? How is how is an, a microRNA different from a messenger RNA? Sure. Not in terms of only function, but like in terms of what it is. Sure. Uh, well, in terms of function, as I said, it doesn't produce protein, but instead it interacts with the messenger RNA. Physically, really, what it is as a molecule is it's a short RNA strand. Um, so RNA transcript or messenger RNA could be thousands of nucleotides long. Um, in the case of microRNAs, we're talking about 20, 22 micronucleotides long. Um, and so that's essentially how they differ. And I guess physically, yeah, that's how they differ. Yeah. So, so it's like really uh, microRNAs. They're both literally RNA, though. So yeah. it's just a few, like, uh, like if you think of DNA as like that whole staircase thing everyone's talking about, and RNA is half of that staircase. This is like little bits, like only a few steps that are kind of doing their own thing. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. All right, so they regulate neurofilament, you mentioned. So what is neurofilament, and how does it relate to ALS? So neurofilaments are essentially a protein within your cell that involves structuring the cell. Essentially, they provide a skeleton for the cell, essentially like how your bones provide a skeleton for your body. It provides support and structure for the cell. Um, Without these neurofilaments, you could imagine that the cell can either perform, provide the structure that's needed for it to function, and it's going to collapse in on itself eventually, and then it's going to be have the inability uh, to perform its function as a cell. Essentially, as humans, if we lost our skeleton, we'd collapse in on each other, and none of our organs or us could even move or stand up or do anything. Essentially, the same thing is going to be happening to a cell. Yeah, and nerves are especially weirdly shaped. Yeah, so yeah, nerves are uh, weirdly shaped because they have these 
there are different cell sort of function uh, cellular structure, right? They have a cell body, which is just kind of that round shaped cell that we kind of think about. And then they have this sort of long string thing, which we call an axon, which essentially uh, interacts with other neurons or other cells and allows to send signals and messages to our body. And those messages and signals are going to allow us to move, which is one of the major things about ALS is you can't get those signals out. Okay. Because like these, yeah, they're weird. Like these cells can be as long, like I believe there's one that's almost 30 centimeters long, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can have, I mean, in terms of a motor neuron, you can have one that starts right at the top of your head in your motor cortex and runs right down to your lumbar spinal cord. So one cell could be over a meter long. Yeah. And that's why having these cytoskeletal proteins, such as neurofilament, are important for maintaining structural integrity of something like right. like the axon there. And you can imagine also that these might be bothered sometimes even, like you're, you're moving your head and neck around and your spinal cord at least would have to be a little bit flexible and move some of the time. Um, so so they do have to be somewhat resistant to change even. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, and so you're just, at, uh, you're just starting this lab. How long have you been associated with uh, this project? Uh, so I started this project about two months ago. So I started in the beginning of May. So right after you finished your undergrad. Yeah, right after I was right into it. Yeah. Okay. And your undergrad in. Um, so my undergrad is in genetics and medical sciences. All right. And so, how have you found the leap? Like, I mean, all right. I'll give like put out to put out there for my own biography here. I went from extremely small to extremely big university, and so that was the majority of yeah. my experience changing from undergraduate grad school, but you were at the same place. Yeah, so I did my undergrad here at Western. I'm going to be doing my graduate degree here at Western. Um, I don't know. It's, um, I guess the biggest change would be independence in the sense of academically performing. I mean, uh, a lot of through your undergrad, in terms of academics, even your thesis undergraduate project, which is supposed to be independent is a lot of times you, your hand is held through the whole process and you're told what to learn and you're told what to look up whereas like kind of like in graduate degree you're kind of doing your own independent work right like you know even if your supervisor's like hey I need you to do this you go out and you find out figure out how to do it your hand isn't held as much um, and it's funny like gaining independence going from undergrad to undergraduate same thing from high school to undergraduate but from high school to undergraduate, I think you gain independence in terms of uh, social skills, but in terms of academic skills, I think you really gain your independence when you go from undergrad to graduate. Okay, and uh, how is that? I don't know, I guess you haven't had a chance to TA or anything yet. No. But, uh, how does the other side of the mirror feel to you, like being an employee? Yeah, um, I, I think it's nice, actually. I don't, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a different feel. I, feel like I'm still, it's a bit weird because when you're in sort of this like academic world where you're trying to constantly learn, you kind of still feel like you're in this school mode. You're less feel like an employee than you do as a student. So I don't know. I think it's cool that I have a lot of independence and that I work this essentially nine to five job or some days longer. But um, yeah, I, I guess. I haven't felt much difference going from undergrad to graduate in terms of being employed versus student. The there might be a bit more of a change once the summer's yeah. done and you've officially like started the grad program you'll be in and 
doing neuroscience with me actually, so that's exciting. Yeah. Um, that's it's a good program. Um, the one thing I would say though that I think we should probably like interview a lot of people would be that the experience from lab to lab can be quite different. So some labs, as a grad student, I've heard from friends that you can be very independent, and other labs, I've heard from other friends where you you might constantly have your supervisor telling you what to do and, and not really giving you much choice in the matter. Uh, our lab, we, we do have a fair bit of, uh, I guess, independence. So like, it, that is nice and it gives us a lot of room to grow, but not not every supervisor is equal. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's very uh, specific to the individual situation, I would say, what I understand. Labs. So as someone who works with genes, yeah. <clears throat> uh, what kind of tools does that involve? Like, I'm like my mind still goes to like computers with ADDGs running around and gel um, electrophoresis. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I imagine when working with, I don't know, the, what kind of what kind of stuff do you use? Um, well, what uh, when I was doing my undergraduate, I said one of the most common things you would ever use in genetics is a PCR machine which just amplifies genes for you or amplifies fragments of DNA. Um, as I'm working through this project, I'm working with microRNA, so I'm not really working with DNA, but I'm trying to understand how expression works. So I use an assay called the gene expression assay, uh, and I use this to determine how my microRNA is affecting the expression of a particular protein, such as neurofilament. Mm -hmm. um, and so we can do that by having this technique where we take two luminescent proteins and they give off a luminescence. And so pretty much what I do is I take the area in which the microRNA is going to bind to on that gene uh, and I insert it in and I connect it to this protein that's going to luminesce. And so I have a control, which obviously I'm not going to add my microRNA to see what normal levels are. And then I add my microRNA and then depending how the luminescence changes, I make a call if that microRNA is having an effect, if it's stabilizing it, so it's increasing the expression of that gene, or is it downregulating the expression of that gene. So that's essentially what I do now, yeah. Right. How have those two months been? What have you, have you, I know you haven't crunched any numbers yet, it's yeah. way too early for that, but um, how's it going? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's going good. I mean, uh, the first couple of weeks we were, kind of slow starting, of course, as I was learning the techniques that I'm going to be using in this lab for the next couple of years, I guess, now. Uh, but now it's kind of just gone at a steady pace where I drop into the lab, I do my work. Um, right now, yeah, you're right, I haven't really crunched any numbers yet, uh, as per se, but um, hopefully by the end of the summer, I'll have a lot of data to work with to start crunching numbers. So the microRNAs that you're looking at, have an effect on neurofilament. We've already we've established that neurofilament is a cytoskeletal protein. Um, what meaning would this have for ALS? So, is there any evidence so far to show that neurofilament is involved in ALS? Like, why would we be looking at this structural protein in this disease? So, there has been evidence that uh, neurofilaments neurofilament are um, downregulated in ALS. So there's less of this structural protein? Exactly. And so less of that structural protein would lead to uh, essentially not having a cell to support a cell. Um, 
So if I can figure out which microRNAs are regulating it. So before I get into that, it's also been shown that microRNAs that are involved in regulating neurofilament or are predicted to regulate neurofilament uh, are altered in ALS compared to healthy patients. And so pretty much we take these candidate microRNAs and we're trying to see how they're affecting these neural filaments and if it's stabilizing it, destabilizing it, and assuming that there's a decrease in ALS and a decrease in neural filament, then we would expect that microRNA to stabilize it because it gets back up to normal levels. It should help get that neural filament back to normal levels. So if we do identify changes in, in these, um, like, I guess, cell culture-based types of experiments right. that we're doing, kind of proof of principle whether or not the microRNAs are capable of modulating the expression of this gene. Um, would we then, what, what might the effect be on, on ALS research itself? Like why, what effect would this have on our either understanding of the disease, possible treatments of the disease down the road, uh, or even biomarkers? What would this do for any of those things? Yeah, so um, in terms of understanding microRNAs in ALS, we want to, one, uh, microRNAs are a great way for our making huge in terms of therapeutic treatment, so treating patients who have dysregulated or altered microRNAs, um, you can treat them with that microRNA and they can actually take it in and that can help relieve some of the symptoms. One of the main things though with microRNAs is that we're trying to understand the pathology to ALS. So we're trying to understand pathways that affect ALS so we can understand how these microRNAs um, when they're dysregulated, cause ALS. So sometimes we'll see a mutation, for example, and that mutation is typically seen in ALS, but we don't really know what downstream effects of that mutation is. Um, so it could be an alteration of microRNAs, it could be that it gains a function, does something else, but understanding the various pathways that lead to ALS pathologies is a key aspect in understanding the disease and treating it. And microRNAs is just one of those pathways that we want to study. Are there any situations so far where there have been effective therapies using microRNAs? Or is this all really a new field? Like, I don't. Yeah, so microRNAs, in terms of ALS, no. There hasn't been any therapeutic treatments in terms of microRNAs. MicroRNAs for ALS hasn't really started, didn't come up until about 2010, actually. Uh, was the first paper where we saw micro, when you have dysregulated microRNAs, that can lead to motor neuron disease or ALS or Garrick. Um, and so that's sort of the field where it's at now. It's very fresh, it's very new, and so it's going to be a long while before we actually get some solid data that's going to help us uh, find therapeutic treatments in the future. But in terms of other diseases, are there any are there any where microRNAs are being used right now as a therapy, or is it still kind of is microRNA as a field entirely relatively new, and it's it's more hypothetical situations where treatment might be possible using it, or have yeah. there ever been any shown? I, I don't know. Yeah, so um, in terms of microRNAs and treatment, I've never seen microRNA reach the human trial. Okay, um, but in cancer. A lot of them have done it in vivo, so in mouse or rat models where they've treated the cancer with a microRNA that's been misregulated, that essentially caused that cancer, 
uh, and they've been able to reduce tumor size. Okay. And I guess uh, the last question along that sort of mechanistic yeah. and therapeutic yeah. lines would be, um, you know, in terms of the treatment and disease understanding, yes, that it may have a place there as well. But um, one of the more promising things that I think you and I both saw at a conference recently was possibly microRNA usage as a biomarker. Right. So what would that mean? What, what is a biomarker and how might it be uh, useful for that? And why would it be yeah. advantageous over something like a protein? So um, microRNA as a biomarker, so when we want to try to help diagnose the disease or maybe see an early onset of the disease, we, we can use microRNAs if they're dysregulated. For example, in a human, you take a sample. Um, from a human, you see this microRNA is dysregulated, and we know it's in the pathology of ALS. We may be able to start therapy for this patient early on so we can get early diagnosis or make an early diagnosis and early therapies and treatments before the onset of that disease, theoretically. Um, microRNAs is one of the more difficult ones, though, because we all have to remember that microRNAs are very tissue-specific. So in order to understand the pathology of a microRNA, you have to target the tissue it's affecting. And with the central nervous system, it's really hard to actually get into a spinal cord or into the lower cortex of your brain and figure out what microRNA is affected in that. Most, most nowadays, we try to use pathology in terms of blood samples for various genes. So. That's awesome. That was actually going to be my next question. So yeah. what, what difficulties could you see in yeah. terms of bi uh, biomarker microRNA situation? All right, switching gears just real quick. We only have a little bit of time left. Um, so you're a brand new grad student. Um, how, how do you feel your undergrad in genetics here prepared you for, for research as a graduate student? Yeah. Um, in 10 seconds or less. <laughs> so what I'd say is I think it prepared me. My degree in genetics prepared me for graduate degree in neuroscience because essentially it allowed me to learn a lot of the techniques that I'll be using in terms of in terms of gene expression assays or I think the most the most you get under undergraduate when you're doing it is not only lab experience within your own thesis project or in lab courses going throughout, but like the theory of how everything works. And so when you can really grasp the theory of how everything works within yourself, a lot of the techniques that come to you as you're going through your graduate degree are going to come a lot easier to understand what's going on. Awesome. All right. My very last question, um, which you probably kind of already touched on, what would you recommend for any uh, undergrads who are considering graduate school? Uh, what would you recommend that they do like right now as an undergrad? Um, to prepare themselves or help them decide? Uh, I would say really try to think about, one, the topic you're interested in, uh, and two, I would think about what research you want to do in the future. So as you're going through your undergraduate degree, think about the research you want to do in the future, and maybe you can get into a lab for the summer, or you can do an undergraduate thesis and help you prepare and understand what your interests are. Um, 
as well, if you're interested in something and you're really determined to get it, see what's out there. See what the research is, what's currently going on. If you're interested in cancer, neurodegenerative diseases, whatever it is, see what's recently out there. That's going to help you find eventually what you're interested in. Inspiration. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Zach, for coming on the show. Uh, hopefully, we'll have you again sometime. I'm looking forward to working with you for the next couple of years in the lab. Um, Everybody, thank you for listening to GradCast. Come tune in next week. Uh, check us out on gradcastradio.com or gradcastradio.ca. And uh, see you all next time. That's all for this week. If you want to send us some feedback or if you want to come on the show yourself, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Be sure to hook us up on social media. On Twitter, we're at gradcastradio. And look up Gradcast Radio also on Facebook. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, the podcast is located at gradcast.podbean.com and it's on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a review? It really helps us out. We'll see you guys next week.